0: the fail on podcast episode zero zero two and then i got a job as a programmer for hbo and i really just wanted to make tv shows to be honest and i wanted to write novels i didn't really want to be a businessman
1: Welcome to the Fail On Podcast, where we explore the hardships and obstacles today's industry leaders face on their journey to the top of their fields through careful insight and thoughtful conversation. By embracing failure, we'll show you how to build momentum without being consumed by the result. Now, please welcome your host, Rob Nunnery. Hello, and welcome to the podcast that believes if you desire to create the life of your dreams, then embracing failure by taking urgent and bold action is the only way. Today, you and I get to learn from none other than James Altucher, author of self-published bestseller, Choose Yourself, Be Happy, Make Millions, and Live the Dream, along with his most recent bestseller, Reinvent Yourself. I'll be talking to James about how to bounce back from some of life's toughest challenges and struggles, what losing 9 million bucks in a single day taught him, how being creative every single day can completely transform your life, and the best way to grow your network and connect with almost anyone, and much, much more. But first, if you'd like to stay up to date on all the FailOn podcast interviews and key takeaways from each guest, simply go to failon.com and sign up for our newsletter at the bottom of the page. That's failon.com, F-A-I-L-O-N.com. Without further ado, Mr. James Altucher. Hello, and welcome to the Failon Podcast. Today, we're sitting down in New York City with Mr. James Altucher. James, welcome to the show.
0: Rob, thanks for not only having me on your show, but you've been so good about scheduling he came straight to where I am. I know I was horribly inconvenient, so you you you're, you did a great job just kind of showing up.
1: You know, and I, and as they say, ninety percent of the job is showing up. Hey, it's hundred percent true, and I've got I've actually got to come clean. So I was telling you as well as that I, I know I reached out to Pamela as well, your girlfriend, and I <laughs> I was like, I'm gonna be in New York City. April first to third, zero plans to be in New York City. April first to third, I knew I was going to be in Toronto, and I actually had. Hey, a- you're, wait, that's my trick.
0: You're taking <laughs> my, you're stealing
1: from my book. You're not allowed a- to do that. That's what I do. So I have a flight booked back from Toronto to San Diego, and I was like, well, and I finally heard back, and we connected, and we made it work. So I canceled that, got a flight to New York City, and here we are. And by the way,
0: just it's not all like I. Um I moved today from one Airbnb to the next so yes. I made room On two in my day. schedule yes No yeah no so Trust you me. literally
1: moved into this place 3 minutes ago and then you rang the bell That's amazing and just for a little context we're sitting what floor is this you know 34th floor 34th floor I'm looking, I'm thinking that's directly north, right? Yes. North-facing view in Manhattan. See the Chrysler Building. Do you see the Empire State Building? I see the Empire State Building, yeah. Just a gorgeous view, though. So thanks for hosting. No problem. I really appreciate it. And I've done one on the beach with Philip McKernan, like I told you, a podcast. And I think, sorry, Philip, but this uh, this takes the cake.
0: Well, it depends what kind of view you like. Like a beach-ocean view is, of course, this beautiful natural setting that humans are... you know, it's almost like an evolutionary thing. Like we always like the beach ocean view, but there's something about kind of like these vertical cities like Manhattan, where it's just, there's, there's everybody on the ground. And then there's millions of people, even at this high up level that we're at right now, just looking across This is not the tallest building. There's, there's a thousand buildings
1: out there. Yeah. It's so just driving in coming on like I flew into Newark and I took a, took a car in, and under the Lincoln tunnel, you come out and it's just like, boom you get hit with the energy right away like, i i love this city yeah just to get back on track obviously this is the fail on podcast and no offense but you're like the king of failure i'm the king of failure <laughs> all right get out of here <laughs> yeah see let the door hit you on the way out no but in, in a good way right because you don't just let failure kind of define you you turn you take lessons from it and you turn things around and you you learn from it and you get better you know i read this beautiful quote the other day Herbie Hancock was, you know who Herbie Hancock is? Yep. So
0: I'm not into jazz or whatever, but I liked Herbie Hancock when I was a kid. And then he's talking about how he used to play with Miles Davis. And one time, Miles Davis was doing some kind of improv thing, and Herbie Hancock was doing his thing, and he hit a chord that was just a total mistake. And he says, I made a total mistake. There's no way you could say I was in in any way in sync with what Miles Davis was doing. And so Miles Davis, he said, pause for like a microsecond. And then he started playing and he made my chord that I hit, that was a total mistake, he made it fit right in. And he said, there is no musical note is a mistake until you hear the note after it. And I just, I'm paraphrasing the quote because I don't remember it exactly, but it's that same sentiment. And I thought that makes so much sense that you can't make a mistake and say that's a mistake. It's you do what you do, and then everything is determined by what happens next. And Miles Davis, of course, again, I don't know jazz. I don't know blues. I, don't, I barely know who he is. I don't know what instrument he plays, if you told me. But clearly, he was the best in the world at what he did. So he was able to take anything he had in front of him and turn it into a work of art. So, so I think that's the key is how, how quickly can you take an event... And let's not label a failure, but how quickly can you take an event and turn it into something amazing? And and that's the key. And I, I just read that quote two days ago, but it's really stuck with me. So I'm going to add one more thing. You know, one key to writing, I think, is that if you think about something a couple times in a row, then that's something worth talking about and writing about. And so I've been thinking about this one quote, and so that's something that's I'm going to either write about or talk about or, or think more about.
1: No, I love that. So... Kind of on that note as well. So, I was just looking at the, the front cover of the Reinvent Yourself book, right? And there's a, there's a really cool quote by Brian Koppelman, the creator of Billions. And just to, just so I don't mess it up, it's James is on a very personal journey. He's telling you the story on Saturday. Sunday, he's talking about how, he, how it failed. And on Monday, he's talking about a, how about doing it a different way. Right. So it's taking action, screwing it up and then reengineering it to to find a new way. Right. Yeah. But let's not even I, I don't even like using the phrase screwing it up because and I'll, I'll tell you I'll tell you
0: a story that involves Brian and the show Billions. But, you know, you think about things in terms of experiments often, you know, life's it, this is a cliche. Right. But cliches are worth kind of paying attention to. So life's so short, if you waste any time in kind of this state of, oh, I screwed up, so that's wasted time. And so I've spent many years in that state, so it's not like I avoid it. I think the key, you know, everybody's got ups and downs every year of their lives. Like, I don't know, the the biggest billionaire in the world will, of course, age and have death in his life and and get sick and have bad relationships and, and so on. So everybody's got ups and downs, and it's how quickly you can bounce back and you bounce back because of your internal sense of well-being. You bounce back because of the energy you have from physical health. You bounce back because of the people you surround yourself with are good people. You bounce back because you're creative and you have ideas that excite you and so on. So I think that's what really, you know, makes a life. As so, so do you mind if I tell you a story about Brian Koppelman and Billions? Please. No, I so. I love it. So, uh and I, I always tell all the stories about how oh i lost all this money in my first business i was gonna kill myself I, I, I bounced back i'm gonna hold off on that but i was on the set of billions before showtime even fully picked it up and so billions for anybody who doesn't know is a show about hedge fund manager versus a da the hedge fund manager yeah it's a great show damian lewis plays the hedge fund manager paul giamani plays the da they're, they're fighting each other whatever and uh Brian says, why don't you come down and watch the first episode of season one being filmed, the premiere of the of the series? And I was like, this is great. I've never watched like a, a scripted television show being shot before. And I was so excited. And I get there and uh, everybody's explaining everything to me. I meet some friends I hadn't seen in a while because uh, they were watching. And also we're at the fictional hedge fund and Damian Lewis is, you know, playing Bobby Axelrod, and he's making his hedge fund decisions. And Neil Berger, who directed Limitless, was was shooting it, and Brian and David, is, his writing partner, were there. In the middle, in the middle of the day, around noon, I get a text: emergency board meeting. And it was on a company I'm on the board of that had a, a billion in revenues, and great company. When I entered the board and I was really involved, when I entered the board, we, we had about 400 million in revenues. We built up to about a billion in the two years I was on the board. Not not because of me, but I like to think I helped a little. So I figured, oh, this is going to be great. This is going to be the best day of my life. Like, Not only am I on the set of this TV show and learning so much fun stuff, but maybe this company is going to get sold and I have all these shares because I'm on the board. And uh, I have the emergency board meeting And it turns out the largest shareholder had nothing to do with the company. The largest shareholder had a tax lien put on him for $90 million. And the bank who was, you know, helping us meet payroll, you know, many companies, you know, we're a profitable company, but we reinvested. So the bank kind of on a, and also company money comes in. Phases, You know, you bill and money comes later. So to get make regular payroll, a bank would lend. And then when we got paid, we'd pay them and so on. So the bank said, this is ridiculous. We're a little nervous. We don't know, understand what happened here because um, this breaks the covenant in the in the loan. And um, we're just going to take over the company today. And, uh, and I'm like, I, this was like a shock. Like I didn't understand it. And I'm like, yeah, and the C I said this to the CEO, you gotta, or what are you going to do? And he said, well, you know, that we broke, you know, that this shareholder broke the covenant we had, he backed his personal assets. He broke the covenant with the bank. And so they're coming in and, and I, I have to go where I'm fired. We're, we're, they're taking over. And so I had, I had $9 million worth of stock in this company. So within seven days, a billion in revenues, the bank came in, they basically took uh, all our customers, gave it to their other clients who were in the same industry. And so a billion in revenues went to zero, the company declared bankruptcy, and it, it just went to zero, went out of business. Not, It wasn't on the board anymore, and that was that. And so, so, and I knew this was going to happen. I mean, I'm an idea person, so I came up with idea after idea after idea, but nothing. There was just nothing to do. And I think this is why Brian says this quote. So I get I get off the phone. I just you know nine million dollars is a fuckload of money. <laughs> like I was very unhappy. Right. And uh, sorry for cursing no, on your No, curse all you hours. want. It was that one was worth a curse. I won't curse again. Yeah. <laughs> and um, there's nothing for me to do. I'm out in the middle of nowhere at this fake hedge fund, uh, and they're still shooting. They're shoot. They're gonna shoot for another six hours. So I went back, decided to just. You know, this would be like... Like, what a, are you feeling?
1: Like, are you just... Are you furious? Are you I'm, sad? I'm are you furious.
0: Mad? I'm sad. I'm angry. I'm scared. I'm anxious. Mush. You know, I was depending on this money. You know, it's not like I... It's not like I had a $100 million where nine... Oh, I could like whatever. This was like, you know, my life savings practically. And um, uh, so I go back to the set and I figured, you know what? I'm on the set of this TV show. I've been looking forward to this for a month. I've got all my friends here and I'm learning. And now I, I spent the rest of the day just watching how the director, this is a great director. He's directed some of my favorite movies, he's directed other TV shows. So I'm asking him questions, I'm asking the writer's questions, I'm asking the actor's questions. So I spent the rest of the day just having a great time. And I didn't think about it again until the, of, of course later at night at three in the morning, I woke up thinking about it and the next day I was thinking about it. But a few months later I told Brian what happened that day And he was like, oh my gosh, you know, we, we just thought you were in the bathroom for a long time. You came back, you were laughing, you were asking questions, you were enjoying the rest of the day. And I think that's
1: where that quote came from. How are you able to flip the switch so fast? Like when you took that time for yourself and then came back out, like, was it, was it reframing your mind about what just happened or?
0: Uh, I think, you know, I've written so much about other failures, like failing in business, failing, losing a home, losing marriages, losing other businesses, losing everything and i decided okay well this gives me a chance to not be some bs guy like every other person who says oh you know do this or the, do that so I was, i'm just gonna apply my own philosophy to what just happened bad things happen so let's see if what i always say and write about works once again for me because it's worked in the past let's see if it works and so i just did it And my I, I asked myself am i being physically healthy yes am i you know am i being emotionally healthy yes i'm around all these great friends and there was even a photo taken later in the day we're all smiling and and laughing am am i being creative well yes i'm on the set of this show i started thinking of ideas if i were to write episodes of this show what would i do so i started thinking of all these things am i being spiritually healthy which means recognizing a there's nothing i could have done here i have no regrets I did have anxiety about the future. Like I had so, you know, it's so hard to disconnect yourself. Worth from the your the network. mainly, right? Yeah. yeah. And, but I figured, you know what? I One thing I've never had a problem with is getting in the trenches and making money when I needed mm. to. And, and I have, I've diversified my life in various ways. So I was able to, to focus on that whenever I got, was feeling anxiety. And I just said, okay, I'm going to, um, I'm going to enjoy myself. That's what I'm here to do today. And, and so I did. And now, and now look, am I, I'm still thinking about it like, what the hell? Like, I, I that was a lot – like, what if that had, a situation had worked out? But you know what? Maybe, maybe it was too good to be true. You never know. So I, I learned from the experience, and now I'm able to have a
1: story out of it. And I could die tomorrow, and then I, it just wouldn't have mattered anyway. Exactly. So in situations like that where it's a failure, right, but it's not necessarily – your failure or like within your control to have prevented it from happening, right? Although, I don't know.
0: I mean, hard to say. Every situation, you it's not like you're dealt. It's People say, oh, you play the hands you're dealt. You know, a little bit, I dealt myself those hands. Like I picked, I chose to go on that board and there were other factors maybe I should have, I don't know, it's hard to say. You know, you build experience and then, you know, if certain situations happen again, I'd probably, that were similar, I'd probably say no. To you know, because I spent a lot of time on that. Being you know, being a board member, if you're a good board member, you're going to spend a lot of time. Probably would not have said yes to being on that board uh, if I knowing now. You know, but uh, but I mean, like even in retrospect, not the big thing, but little things that happened along the way. Not that anything illegal. I didn't see anything illegal happening, and and nothing bad was happening with the company. It was just this one guy, but. Maybe I should be more careful and do more due diligence
1: on the shareholders. I don't know. I, yeah. It's hard to say. So that's that's kind of a reactive, how do I handle it when it happens type thing. How do you, like when you're going into a situation where you're putting yourself at risk of failure or embarrassment, How do you how do you deal with those situations going into it, being proactive, not something that's already happened to you?
0: Well, I think now I'm setting up my life, you know, let's say in a given day you make Uh, let's say a thousand medium to big choices. Okay, you choose what you're going to wear, you choose what you're going to eat, you could choose who you're going to call, you choose what you're going to work on. Say during the day, you choose what TV you're going to watch, you choose what news you're going to consume. So let's say you make a thousand medium to big choices. I'm just making that number up. Maybe it's more, maybe it's less. What I try to do is over time I've gotten, I've really focused on how can I, of that thousand, what percentage are choices that, I'm making to choose to do what's going to make me happier, and so I'm trying to make a larger percentage of those choices be ones that I'm directly in control of what uh, of the choice, so so I can choose what to make what's going to make me happier. So, for instance, if you work at a job and your boss says, uh, "Run and get me coffee," that wouldn't make me happy. You can't always change that in one day. So, if I, so, I've been in jobs like that, and and you kind of say, "Okay, well, over time, that's the sort of t- choice." I don't want to have to, I don't want to do that. I want to I start gearing, directing my life in a direction so less and less will I be confronted with that choice. And so over time and over years even, but every day you can improve this a little bit, You know, out of a thousand, maybe 10 choices you make at first that are like, oh, I'm going to take a walk around the block during my lunchtime and that's going to make me really happy. And so you can make maybe 10 choices of day one. And so now I feel... It's not 10. It's maybe 50% or more, maybe even 80% are choices where I'm making the choice to make myself happy. And so part of those choices for me now is I'm not going on boards anymore because there's a decent chance if I go on a board 50% of the time, just from my own experience, it's going to be a miserable experience. I don't want to have those 50% miserable experiences. In what way? Just by the time you have to spend? Time time you have to spend, and some companies are good and some companies are bad. So when a company's bad, you have to deal with a lot of bad problems when you're on the board. You have to solve the problems. Now, I don't mind solving problems, but A, I'd rather solve my own problems than other people's all the time. I was on the board once of a company where we got the monthly financials the board, and I look at the monthly financials, and I saw a disaster happening. So I called the CEO, and I said, I won't say his name, I said, Billy, uh, it's not his name. You have six months worth of money left, according to the burn on these financials. And he said, yeah, that's right. And I'm like, well, what are you going to do? And he said, well, in three months, we're going to do a, a fundraising with venture capitalists. And I said, no, you, you're actually, I have to tell you, you're already out of business. Like there's already no way for you to not be, not go out of business. And he's like, what are you talking about? Cause he's the first time CEO. And I said, well, Let's just imagine you start raising money today, not in six months, not in three months. If you start raising money today, best case within three months, you will have circled the money. Then you have to get legal paperwork done. Now you're going to have one month of money left and you don't think the investors are going to know that. And then they're going to put the gun to your head and, and, and you know, really mess with you. You're, you're out of business already. And so, well, he said, no, you're ridiculous. I'm not out of business. I'm not changing a thing. So I had to call, this was a hard work. I had to call everybody else on the board. First, I had to argue with him, which is very annoying. Um, I had to call everyone else on the board. I had to spend a lot of time convincing them that there was an emergency. They all agreed. We then had an emergency meeting with the CEO. He disagreed with us, but we still said, look, you can do your fundraising, but we're going to also hire a bank and we expect you to participate with them. Fortunately, he did to, sell, to do kind of a fire sale of the company. Six, six months later, he had three hours left before he was going to miss payroll. Like everything was too like on the clock, and he sold the company. He personally made I forget if it was like six million or 12 million dollars. So I made a little bit because I had a small percentage. I was on the board. The sale wasn't that much. but I made this guy wealthy. He argued with me every step of the way along the way. So just, it's not a fun experience for me. I spent a lot of time on the phone. I spent a lot of time anxious because I had other investors in there. I had helped them raise millions of dollars. So I, was part, I, I cared more about their money than my own little money in right, the
1: company. Right, right. On that note, so did nobody else see that, that that there was an emergency within the company? No,
0: because most people, when they go on the board, it's like, oh, I put some money in and I'll go on the board. It looks good. We got so-and-so on the board. He sold the company for $400 million. Now we'll put him on the board. So they don't care because they already have a lot of money. They don't care at all. They're running other things. Everybody else was doing something else. My issue was I had helped raise a lot of money. I had gotten my friends into the company so so a board member should have the same level every board member should have equal level of fiduciary responsibility, but I had an extra what I felt moral responsibility so so CFO was like an old friend of the guy and and i don 't know you know i don't know why nobody else was aware. I just happened to have you know after helping invest in and manage.
1: Th- 40 or 50 companies, I I knew these things and some Mm. people didn't. Gotcha. What's the count out now? Are you at, I think last I saw it's 17 business failures? Yeah, probably. (laughs) Probably that at least. Okay. Um, You know, also
0: I've invested in a lot and some of those have failed too. So you could could up that number if you you need. Yeah, if I want to, I can up it. I've had some successes though too. Yeah, of course. Well, I, it's definitely enough that it's statistically significant. Like I know what are the first signs of failure? Like for instance, having only six months of burn is a good sign of yeah, failure. Yeah, exactly.
1: I was going to ask along, I mean, you've got the data, right? You've seen 17 different ways businesses can fail. Were any of those like, were any of them repeat failures from kind of the same root cause? Or were, were, were yes, was it 17 different, unique?
0: Well, there's unique things and same, similar things in each one. So, and you know, and some of these are investments and some of these are businesses that I've started, but uh, communication is very important. In every business, there's a lot of moving parts. There's a CEO, there's a COO who's usually running day-to-day, there's employees, there's shareholders, there's future shareholders, there's customers, and those customers are big customers and little customers, there's lawyers and accountants. And that's I think I kind of summarized most of the parties involved. But Each one of those has to communicate to most of the other parties. So for instance, the CEO has to communicate with everybody. Sometimes investors are customers, sometimes employees are shareholders and employees have to talk to customers and employees have to um, communicate to CEOs and COOs. So there's lots of agreements in place, but a lot of those agreements are not obviously contracts. They're kind of like, oh, I think because he's the COO or he's the head of sa- sales or she's the head of biz dev. I think he or she should be doing this. And the shareholders think, oh, the CEO should be great. And the CEO thinks, oh, the investor should be willing to put more money in. So there's all these kind of like implicit agreements, but that no one's really agreed to. And then when push comes to shove, it turns out nobody agreed to anything. And so, so a lot of the failure has to do with not everybody realizing what everybody else has agreed to going into this and you know you kind of have to all buy into the same vision and it's the CEO's job in part to make sure that He has a really strong vision that's better than everybody else's vision, meaning competitors in the space, and that everybody from employees to shareholders to customers buy into that vision. And that's really difficult. That's why
1: it's really hard to run a business. It's really hard to be an entrepreneur. So you've run businesses in a a few different industries from finance. Now you write a lot. Do you remember the first time that somebody gave you money in exchange for something that you created, whether it's a product or a service? Yeah, and it was so
0: great. Like I remember one time... It's like 1995. I had a full-time job
1: at HBO. So you weren't like, uh, sorry to interject, you weren't one of these people that were born entrepreneurs selling lemonade and all that stuff, huh?
0: I don't know. I mean, I went to I went to school. I went to graduate school. I got thrown out of that. And then I was a, a programmer for a while. And then I got a job as a programmer for HBO. And I really just wanted to make TV shows, to be honest. And I wanted to write novels. I didn't really want to be a businessman. And my sister and my brother-in-law were struggling with a... A CD-ROM business that they were doing, and they didn't CD-ROMs, of course, were dying, and so I showed them this new thing, the World Wide Web, www, and so they they learned it, and and I said, look, I'll help you out as long as I can, but I really want to just make a TV show. I'm not really interested in this, but they kind of needed help on the programming side. I was a software guy, and they needed help on the sales side, like you know, sales is a skill, like not everybody has it. And I I think I don't, I didn't, I never studied sales, but I had maybe a little bit of a talent at it. So I would go in and do the sales for them. And so being the sales guy means that's the, who the customer is going to call when things are a problem. So the first website we did, and I figured, okay, I'll just show them this and I'll, I'll do this. And that's it. First website we did was we, it's still up diamondcutters.com. We did this website for this diamond wholesale business. And I had $0 in the bank I was living in a one-room apartment. Uh, on a, there was no furniture. I just had a foam mattress, and it was like the summer. So like, I would sweat, and the sweat would like stick <laughs> to the foam. And there was like cockroaches <laughs> in the bathroom, and I would just stay late at my brother-in-law's office. So so anyway, I I, I we found this diamond dealer who needed to make a website and i did i did the website I, I did all this great software so like uh you know it would teach it was like an online course about how to value a diamond and i would make the graphics on the fly i had software that made the graphics on the fly with all this, this whole of the gia certificates that certified diamonds and then I, I had a database of all the diamonds he had in his inventory and i had the order forms it was e-commerce it's like this basic e-commerce website in 1995 and then just man doing all this like on the fly graphic stuff it was pretty sophisticated for 1995 like i like i knew what i was doing then i, I wouldn't be able to do the same thing now and then he paid us so he paid us $35,000 and i said okay i want my half and so i got $17,500 and i don't know why i got it this way i got it in cash <laughs> What, what, like a briefcase, a bag, yeah, a paper bag, and um, I paid taxes on it and everything. <laughs> but uh, later, I paid the taxes, and but at that moment, I had seventeen thousand five hundred dollars cash, and I had never, I had zero yeah. in my for my entire life. Cockroaches in the bathroom, cockroaches in the um, nasty mattress. So what I did was I, I I was living in Queens, but I walked over to the Chelsea Hotel, um, which is a hotel on Twenty Third Street. It's got a very rich history of like artists and musicians and writers and you, you can't really live there. Like he, if you just walk in and said, I want to live here, they'd say, this is a hotel. You can't live here. But I had this paper bag of cash. So I said, let me speak to the owner. So owner's guy's name was Stanley Bard, famous guy now. Cause of, cause again, cause of the history of the Chelsea hotel. and, I showed him my, I said, let me just go into your office. I want to live here. And he said, nobody lives here. And I'm like, I know people live here. I know half the rooms are people live here. And so just, just go into your room. And I gave him the bag of cash and I said, just give me whatever room for, for a year that this cash will pay for. And uh, at the time, rents weren't as high. And he says, what are you, a drug dealer? And I'm like, no, I work at HBO. And so that clinched it because I worked at this television company. So I was an artist credibility. Yeah. Even though I was a programmer at HBO, I didn't say, I said, I'm making TV shows, HBO. And he said, okay. So he gave me a room and then I just gave him the cash and then I lived and then I
1: moved to Manhattan. How much, how much did you actually get? Do you remember what it cost to live there by, you know, for a month? At that time, uh, yeah, because I moved. You know what happens in the Chelsea Hotel, or not
0: anymore, because it's sort of closed down. But uh, after 130 years, it closed down. But um, I moved from room to room. I think eventually I was paying about 1,900 a month. It's cheap.
1: Now you can't, you wouldn't be able to do that for like five, six thousand a month. New York got more expensive. So with HBO, um, it brings back something I read was that you spent three years interviewing prostitutes. Yeah. So tell tell us about that experience.
0: So, so HBO didn't want to have anything to do with the internet. Maybe they'll deny this now, but so one time I spent the weekend basically creating an intranet for every, I hooked up all the databases and I even put the, the kitchen menu, you know, you know they had a great dining hall. I put the, the menu on, on, online. I made this intranet website and then I demonstrated it and they were like, oh my gosh, this is like amazing. And so they said, okay, well, let's make an internet website. They had no website and they didn't even have a domain name. They had to buy HBO.com because there was a medical supplies company named HBO and it was in Atlanta, Georgia, actually. And do you know where you're from? Or did you say you're from? So HBO and company was around then, uh, uh I think they got bought by somebody, but, uh, uh, they paid $250,000 for the domain name hbo.com in 1995. That's, oh, I can only imagine what it'd be worth now. <laughs> I can't imagine, yeah. So I said to them, why don't you let me do, just like you do original programming for TV and you're so great at it, which is why I wanted to work here. Why don't you let me do original web shows? And so, I, so they said, okay, well, what? And I said, how about, I go around at three in the morning on a Wednesday night, not a Saturday night because everyone's out for their partying or whatever. But a Wednesday night, if someone's out at three in the morning, you know, they're, up to something. Right. Like if you if <laughs> yeah. you if you were out at a three in the morning on a yeah. Wednesday night, like right now you're 31 years old. You gotta, um, I'm you gotta up to wipe up no good. I'm maybe, up to no good. Yeah. Yeah, you're up to no good. No one's up to any right. good. And so so and that turned out to be true. I would find somebody, I would try to find one person who was up to good and nobody was up to good. <laughs> so so I interviewed I turned over every rock in the city. It was about two and a half years. And then they did let me shoot it as a pilot. They didn't air the pilot but I did shoot a pilot and I got that experience which was amazing. And, uh, it was really like an, a wonderful experience cause I had to, I'm a shy introverted computer programmer and I had to learn, I had to like in the middle of the night, just go up to like every character you could think of. Like you can't even imagine some of the people I had to go up to and just say, Hey, well, are you with the crew or is it just you or, well, I would go up by myself and then like a couple blocks away or a block away would be like. Uh, uh, you know, one assistant and one, Just you know, video guy. To see how it's going. Yeah. And so once we, I started a dialogue, then they would kind of like hone in and I was mic'd, So everything was recorded anyway. And we would take the transcript. I would interview like, let's say 20 people on a night. And then we would take the top four and make the transcript. I'd get a designer, do a whole design around it. And we put it up on the internet and we had, you know, we take stills from the video and a photographer. And, uh, so it was great. And, uh, Yeah, I interviewed. I interviewed like maybe two and a half years, twenty people a week. You know, I interviewed like over two thousand people. uh, How many were
1: prostitutes? Just out of curiosity, that's out that late. And if they're not prostitutes, what the hell are they doing out that late? Well, okay, who's out at that time? So it really was like this alternative
0: lifestyle that's out at that time. I, I, there really is an alternative lifestyle, like because no, nobody who's out at three in the morning really works a normal job. So, um, so but there's a whole subculture. I kept running into the same people over and over again. There's a whole subculture of people who live and thrive and are alive at three in the morning, and I'm an early sleeper. So that's why I wanted to see. So yeah, maybe like a, a quarter would be prostitutes. Another quarter would be some kind of drug dealer. Another quarter would be people who are like up to something, but you don't know what, like, you know, a lot of people are up to something and they're not telling you what. And so you learn, you learn very quickly, by the way, to recognize who's lying and who isn't. And there's lots of skills in terms of determining who is lying. So I'll tell you the greatest skill is if somebody doesn't answer the question, it means they're lying. So I'll give you a great example. If, um, if you ask your, your wife, oh, where were you last night? And she, she says, I was out with friends. Why? She's lying <laughs> because she didn't answer the question. <laughs> you didn't ask her who she was with. You asked her where she was. <laughs> right. Exactly. So, so
1: that, but, but that happens all the time. Like did you uh, did you just naturally kind of start picking that up or is that something you you like did you like when you're going out to interview interview these people were you reading beforehand of how to how to best like navigate no, this? No no
0: no you pick it up because what happens is is I felt myself getting really annoyed if somebody you could tell right away if somebody was being authentic or not like like I could talk to a transvestite prostitute and say well why are you here and she could say um, well, I was in and out of, you know, my parents were drug addicts and died. I was in and out of juvies for, you know, and then, and then detention homes for, for my whole childhood, I was raped and abused constantly. And so it really made me confused about what my sexual orientation was and, So, but looking like this now, because I'm halfway between operation, the only thing I could do is sell my body and Giuliani is pushing us more and more west. So it's in the meatpacking district. So this is someone who's being authentic and, and being honest with me. And I could start asking questions or I could, I could find someone who's in the lobby of you know some some twenty five year old who's in the lobby of a hotel he just rides in there in his bicycle and I'm saying oh what are you doing and he he's like oh I'm uh you know I'm um visiting my mother and uh I could say why are you visiting your mother at three in the morning And why what is your mother doing living in a hotel? And he he he's like well I love my mother and so there's some some weird answer, you know, and then you realize it doesn't quite, nothing's adding up, you know, and uh, you start to get a sense when people are making sense and when people are not making sense. And if, you're, and if I feel that sense of annoyment, it could be because they really just don't want to talk to me or it could be because they want to talk to me, but they're not going to tell me what they're doing
1: because they're going to lie. And, uh, and that would be about like a third of the time is there anybody back from those days that you would go up to or that you went up to that's really like stuck with you, their story that's stuck with you through these years? Yeah. Yeah. Many people. What's,
0: what's, what's one that sticks out? Well, just all the pain. I mean, I feel like it's a really interesting question because, you know, since then I've dealt a lot with all these things we were talking about earlier, like entrepreneurship and let's say writing or finance or speaking or these, you know, all these BS self-help kind of things. And, uh, Um, but what you realize is that during the day, everybody hides, everybody hides in their suit and their tie and their job and their cubicle. And, and, and there's many, many layers between what you see and who they are. And at three in the morning, there's no, there's really no hiding it's, it's dark out. That's the only hiding and everything else is kind of like what you see is what you get for the most part. You know, that's why even the lying, you could tell they're lying. Here, everybody, uh, during the day, everyone's 100% of the people are alive. So <laughs> sure. so what stands out is just, you know, the suffering and like people are like everybody here talks about, oh, be a minimalist. That's a, such a great way to live. Well, was, I'm talking to hundreds of homeless people. Those are the real minimalists, you know, and they're suffering and they're mentally ill. And like, uh, or or you talk to people who are cheating on their wives or cheating on their husbands, or you talk to drug dealers who are also pimps and you kind of see them, how they're kind of managing their, their business, you know, on a really like violent way. I've been out to Rikers Island at three in the morning, you know, sneaking there on the, there's only one bus that goes back and forth, but it has to go back and forth 24 hours a day. So you see just awful things like who's going on the bus and then who gets on the bus to go back home. Cause if you're bailed out at two in the morning, you gotta leave. They gotta let you out. And um, I don't know, just every, every week I would see just the worst, thing. This is New York City. So yeah, it's not, uh, I don't know, the worst city in the world. But when you kind of get to the dregs of New York City, it's pretty bad.
1: Even even now. Now it's much better than it was 20 years ago, but it was pretty bad then. Right. So So obviously you saw a lot of people that were going through really tough times. Just along your journey, I know you mentioned the story when you're on the set of Billions. What's been your absolute rock bottom lowest point in your business journey? Yeah, you know,
0: it's funny because I would say the most oppressed I've ever been is not my, the same as the rock bottom. There's never, there's never one point where you could say, I mean, for some people, you always hear about this in kind of like rehab culture. There's this one point where you hit rock bottom and now you seek help. But that never really, that mythology is not really true because you hit rock bottom, you go to rehab, you go to a 12-step thing, and then you get out. And then 80% or 90% of people relapse into their addictions and and their bad behaviors. So there's no one pivotal moment. I mean, the most depressed I ever got was, you know, that first business that I described. So after I made that diamond website, suddenly everybody was asking us to make a website. Every entertainment company, because I just made HBO.com also, every entertainment company in the world, like you, you, you name an entertainment company that existed, then they asked me to do their website. So, so we built an expertise really quickly of building entertainment websites. And so we built a fairly big company very fast. You know, these companies were desperate to make websites because then nobody had a website then. I mean, we made everything from AmericanExpress.com to TimeWarner.com to Miramax, Disney, you know, all these, all these websites we were making. And and charging hundreds of thousands of dollars at that point for what you would do for now, like for free now on WordPress, we were charging Gosh. hundreds of thousands of dollars for. So we sold that business when I saw, because I... As the guy making the website, I saw this is not rocket science and that more and more people are going to compete. And, you, and as Peter Thiel so famously says, you don't want to compete. So you want to get out before the competition comes in. So we sold. We made every decision great. And then I was an idiot. Because you think if you're smart in one area, you're going to be smart in every other area. So I won't go into the whole mess of how I lost all this money. But going from millions to zero, losing a house, losing getting so depressed and making, maybe I made like a hundred bad decisions in a row and, or more, maybe I made like 10,000 bad decisions in a row and I couldn't make a good decision. and I was losing money every day and I lost millions and I lost everything and everybody stopped talking to me and I had no friends. And again, I lost uh, this it's beautiful place where I was living to, to live in like, a, I had to take my family. It was like going back to the place with cockroaches practically. And, um, and of course, this is all relative, right? Because I just told you about all these homeless, mentally ill people and, and prostitutes and everything. I certainly had it much worse. But, you know, your, your problems when you're experiencing them are relative. I was I was feeling regret over losing all this money. So here I was just talking about all these homeless people and mentally ill people and prostitutes and everything. So, But it's all relative. When you're feeling like, oh, I just did such a – I worked so hard on this business. I was working 23 hours a day and – uh, you have to deal with customers and employees, and and I really felt and and we did a really good service. I mean, no company had these websites, and we really worked hard. And then I just squandered it all. And there was this dot com boom that was happening. So when of it was like winning a lottery ticket. I thought I was an an idiot for for losing this. So. I was so depressed because I thought I was never going to make this money again. I I had to get rid of. I lost everything. Had to move far away. And and did you think you just got lucky? Or yeah, I thought I just got lucky. So I I refused to acknowledge that I worked hard. I just thought I got totally lucky. And and then I thought that was it. You know, I'm I'm like dead. I you know, of course, I considered suicide. I won't get into that whole thing. And um um, but that wasn't rock bottom. That was rock depression. And and by the way, it wasn't like depression that, oh, I needed antidepressants and then I'm going to start feeling good. Like uh, I was, I did bad stuff. So I had a right to be depressed. Like I didn't know how to get out of that. Uh, So I did talk therapy. I did meditation. I did try antidepressants. Nothing helped at all. Like zero things helped. And it wasn't like I was, they say, it wasn't like I was resistant to the uh, medication. Just medication had nothing to do with what was going on with me. I
1: deserve to be depressed. I really screwed up. What was it that was able to that you're able to do or find that really helped you start on the upswing again? Well, and so this was before
0: hitting rock bottom, but what I was able to do was say, "Okay, I've got two kids. One of them was a tiny baby, yeah. the other one was like a 3 or 4-year-old." And uh and I was just I had I had like a $100, $143 left in the ATM. I remember checking it that one last time. And I was like, I have to get myself in gear. I have to start being creative again. And so I started, well, A, I started taking care of myself. So I started eating better. I started exercising more. I started sleeping better. And I started hanging out with a better group of people, people who would uplift me, people who were doing things that I was interested in doing, people who I wanted to model myself after. I started being creative again, so I, I would take a bunch of books to a cafe in the morning, I'd read them, I would take a waiter's pad and I'd write down 10 ideas every day just to exercise this creativity muscle. I started sharing these ideas with other people to maybe get them interested in working with me and that really worked. So over time, that gave me started giving me ideas that I started getting excited about again and other people were getting excited about them because I would share these ideas and other people would start giving me opportunities. And so out of that, I got a writing job because I pitched a writer on, here's 10 ideas for articles you should write, that he should write. But he said, these are so good, why don't you write them? And so they paid me to write them. And then another guy, a hedge fund manager, I said, here's 10 ideas. Here's 10 pieces of software you could have. that, And
1: I've been using them and they work. So why to- why, why are you doing this? Why are you creating? So you're just creating stuff for other people, yeah. sending it to them, just in hopes of that... that- I mean, what, what's the point of doing it? What, the what?
0: point of doing it is nobody succeeds on their own. Zero people succeed on their own. Every every person in the gazillioners or whatever has helped other people and built something with others. So just a classic example, Google. Larry Page and Sergey Brin worked together, but that's not just it. They had their professor who was helping them with the algorithm, but that's not just it. Then they had... uh, One of the co-founders of Sun wrote them a hundred thousand dollar check to to help them. But that's not all. Jerry Yang gave them advice from Yahoo. But that's not all. Uh, uh, They took ideas from a patent about how you rank scientific papers, and they put that in the search algorithm. They're the first person to do that. First company to do that. So so there's huge group of they and they were surrounded by very smart. Stanford students. So, so you're saying give value out and then you'll get it back? Basically. Yeah. I mean, they, they were constantly giving value out and they were constantly building the, the universe of people around them. You know, Craig Silverman, their first employee, was, I think, an ex Stanford student. Marissa Meyer was, uh, Go going out with one of them, or friends with one of them, or she was a Stanford student. I forget, and um, she became like the second employee, and and designed the logo, and so and, and then they worked out of I forget, you know, another girlfriend's garage. So you build, you have to be around good people who are going to help you. And I needed to be, I wasn't around anybody. So in order to, and you can't just say, you can't just write to Warren Buffett and say, hey, <laughs> I'll buy you a cup of coffee, and let me pick your. I, I mean. I have this happen all the time. To- he, he doesn't
1: need a cup of coffee. Right?
0: right. He doesn't need a cup of coffee from me. He needs ideas of how he's going
1: to put his $50 billion well, to work. Sh- if, you, if you send him 10 tips on, on investment advice, why should he listen to you though? So how do you, how do you find, I guess... So by the way, I did send him 10 tips. That's, that's yeah, amazing.
0: But, but he didn't respond, which is fine. He doesn't have to respond. I sent 40 people tips and three people responded. So again, there's no obligation for anybody to respond. They're all busy people. You wouldn't, like people call me and say, hey, can I have a coffee? You're someone I really want to learn from. I don't, I I don't have, sometimes I have time, but sometimes I don't. I really, I really love to read and to write and I really want to improve as a writer. So for me, and I really want to improve my ability to write in such a way that can help people. And then I do have other businesses that I'm still involved in. So where do I have the most effect on my own life and on other people's lives? Sometimes I can't, and people don't even understand how to approach other people. Like I had someone today, just today, he was like, hey, can you introduce me to so-and-so? And And I'm like, well, why am I going to give, you just gave me homework. And then I'm going to give him homework. Like he's going to now have to feel obligated to me to respond to you. I don't even know who you are. (laughs) And I don't know what you want from him. And he says, well, I have an event that I want to invite him to. And I'm like, well, why don't you just reach out to him? And he said, and then he put in caps, listen, how about you call me? And and then in lower caps, like he's angry, like you call me in caps and, and then in lower caps, and then I'll tell you more about it. And I'm like, so I have to call you in order to find out about a favor I'm supposed to do for you to get someone else to do a favor <laughs> for you. So like, so so fine if we're all like these amazingly altruistic people who sacrifice our own lives all the time for other people, then yeah, sure, I'll I'll call you, then I'll call him, then I'll convince him to go to your event. But or I could take that half hour or hour or however long it is and I could read a great book and then write a great post that 150,000 people will read and uh and and do that. I have two choices. Those are the two choices I have. What should I do? And so people don't really know how to approach people. In order, in order to approach someone they have to compete with that. To, and that's just with me. For, for Warren Buffett, I have to compete with somebody who really is giving him a billion dollars in value. <laughs> right. And I
1: can't compete with that. Yeah. So, so it's fine if he doesn't respond. So if somebody's listening and they're not surrounded by great people, like, you know, you said you needed to surround yourself with better people, people that are doing things that you find interesting that you want to do. What would you recommend for somebody to reach out to people that are doing great things? Is it, is it exactly what you just said? Like, figure out 10 things you can send them that will help them?
0: There's always ways you can help some people. So almost everybody can help somebody. <laughs> and so look at, look at your own situation. You, you were describing to me your schedule in the past few days because you're giving up to, to launch this podcast. You interviewed people, a lot of mutual friends we have in common. You went to their location, so you made it easy for them. You asked them if they could be on your podcast. They're not doing it just to help you. When you launch your podcast, it's good for them to, to some podcast is good for them to be on. Some it might not be. Good for them to be on, but they're making a decision about if it's good for them. Now, A, there's a little bit that they want to help you. You're launching a podcast and you're part of a community of people. How did you get to be part of that community of people? You went to a couple of conferences. You put in the time networking. You exchanged maybe emails and other ideas for people. You maybe made introductions that you thought would be useful for people. So over time, you built up uh, kind of credits with people and they're re- re- repaying a little bit. They don't have to, but they did. And so Everybody is, can have strategies to build up their network. It's a slow process. Tomorrow, I can't build up my network, but I can continue to build the network that I've. Like, for instance, a lot of people say to me, James, you have the most incredible network I've ever seen which is ridiculous because I have so many horrible networking skills. I'm really bad at returning emails. I'm really bad at returning phone calls. If I meet you at a dinner and we have so much fun talking and then I say, oh, we've got to follow up and do these five ideas. You might never hear from me again, even though I really want to. I'm just really bad at it. And I have, I'm really, and I'm shy. And then, and then I get, and then I get awkward. Like, oh, I didn't return their phone call. So I feel bad later on. I'm not going to return it now. (laughs) And and yet over time, if I do three things a day to build my network mm. over a period of 10 years, I'm going to have a phenomenal network.
1: Yeah. And that's what happens. That's a good point. So I, I, I love your philosophy on growing 1% each week. For also for somebody sitting at home, what would you recommend for somebody that wants to do that, but they don't know necessarily like what skills to start developing in terms of growing 1% each week?
0: Well, everything has to do with energy. So you want to do the things that keep you as energized as possible because let's say you're sick in bed, you're not going to have the energy to do anything. You can't start a business if you're sick in bed. So how do you get energy? There's the most obvious thing. At the end of the day, you're tired and so this body was made to sleep so that you get energy by the morning. Sleep gives you energy. Food gives you energy. Good food gives you energy. Exercise a little bit gives you energy. So that's one thing. Being around good people who support your efforts gives you energy being around bad people who wear on you doesn't give you energy it de- depletes you of energy being creative gives you energy so doing stuff that you love doing and part of that is a lot of people don't know what they love doing so just a basic thing i recommend to people just write down 10 ideas a day here's 10 businesses that might be fun they might be all bad ideas doesn't matter the whole point is just exercising we've let our idea muscles as atrophy as a society so just exercise the idea muscle so they build up. Within 3 to 6 months of doing that, you'll be an idea machine. Your idea muscle will be like bulging. You'll be you'll have a a, a ripped and jacked idea muscle. And then you'll be creative every day and and that'll be exciting. And then you know, having energy, you know, regrets and anxieties also deplete you of energy. So having strategies for for dealing with those.
1: So if every day you kind of check those
0: boxes, you'll grow as a person.
1: So with the idea of fail on, like that being the mantra, the the whole premise is if you're not failing, you're not growing. So how are you on whether you do it on a day to day basis, a weekly basis? Um, how are you pushing yourself outside your comfort zone? I, I listened to your interview with Sarah Blakely, right, and she. She said growing up that her dad would ask her every week what did you fill out this week right just to yeah. push her outside her comfort zone is is that something you try to incorporate in your life and if so how you know
0: there there's a really interesting thing so so I do I say yes to things that I think Will A be fun, and B take me out of my comfort zone, and C maybe will scare me. So, so for instance, later this week I'm gonna do stand up comedy, and I'm and I'm not gonna market it, so I'm just gonna do it with like a bunch of comedians. The audience will be like like, open mic type thing. Not an open mic, like maybe like one level higher than that, but uh uh, but the audience will be like a random audience, nobody who knows knows me or anything, and because like if I give a talk at a conference, I like to make people laugh, but that's a friendly audience this is not going to be a friendly audience. So that takes me out of my comfort zone and it's a skill I want to learn. And, but then I called a friend of mine who's, uh, I grew up with just by coincidence. We went to first grade together or whatever. And he's a world famous comedian right now. And I said, I'm doing this because I'm scared. And he says, well, and this is a guy who's like the top of his, you know, maybe like if you, maybe if, a hundred people list their top ten comedians. He's, He's on a there. bunch on of the their lists. List. Got it. And uh, uh, he said to me, "Look, you you learn that that bombing is survivable. We all bomb, and it's survivable. And that's what you learn. And so that's scary to me. The, the thought of bombing scares scares me. And you've done it before, though. You've done you've done a stand
1: up before. Yeah, yeah. How I did I've done that it before. go?
0: That went great. But it was that was the accusation. A comedian who was there told me, don't 'Don't.'" Get relax on this, you know. Yeah, everyone laugh, but yeah. it's a friendly audience. So you did you well. invited everyone. Okay, yeah, I did great, it. and uh, <laughs> I, did great. I, I did great. I did great. Only because I when I watch the video, it's like you could hardly hear me because everyone's laughing. So, so <laughs> you should drop the mic on that and be done. Stand up comedy crew. I haven't. did drop the mic on that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I wanted the. It was funny because the, one, there's one person who didn't like it. I wanted to end that act in the middle of a joke, so I was dead in the middle of the joke, no punchline. And I just stopped the act. And I just wanted to do that just for the heck of it. And one guy who was just a very classic, you know, set up and punchline type of guy in the audience said, I don't know what you were doing there. Like, what, you just walked off the stage? So he didn't like my my act, but but everybody else
1: was – People people got it and were even laughing then. So your comedian friend said – don't rest your laurels on that. That was a friendly audience. You have to go do this in front of a hostile crowd. Yeah. Yeah. Don't think you did anything yet. So, have you written, have you already drawn up the, yeah, your, all your jokes, everything? Not all of them, but what's up with Let's hear one. Oh, my God. I know uh, it's on, on the spot.
0: I mean, they, we, the problem is one leads into the other, yeah, leads into yeah, the other. Yeah. Cause I, want, I didn't want to do just like stuff that was funny. Uh, I wanted to kind of um, story tell a little bit. Yeah. But like one thing is talks about, being a kid and like, I was, I'm not right, such a good looking guy right now, but I'm 49, whatever. But like when I was a kid, I was a monster. And like girls did not even want to be within a five foot radius of me. And I had like so much acne and it was so huge. And so like my pimple was so big that like scientists discovered two earth like planets orbiting around it and my pimple was so big like it could scroll to the bottom of the facebook feed like and it, just i have a whole run with the pimple so
1: just the self deprecating stuff i mean that obviously warms you to the audience right cuz you don't take yourself too seriously
0: yeah and so and you know what my you know what
1: my favorite body part was what my blind spot <laughs>
0: <laughs> not so bad, right?
1: Yeah. Yep. So, so, so I actually made one up. This is actually this is one of my finer moments in, in comedy. And not a comedian. I'm not a comedian, but I remember I had my wife and my sister there in San Diego at our at her condo at the time, and we were having pasta. We were having, and I don't even know how it came up, but I was I basically said, "Why couldn't the pasta get in the house?" What kind of, why couldn't the pasta get in the house? Because he had no key, <laughs> which is terrible, but it's great. That is terrible. <laughs> it's terrible, but it's great. Okay. You know, but can you understand why that's terrible? And, I'm, and
0: not that I'm such an expert, but you know why that's terrible? Because it has nothing to do with you. Yeah. Yeah. It's, that's true. <laughs> like, you look at it. Look at, like, let's say the best in the world, Louis C.K. Louis C.K. doesn't just say the stuff that's funny. Louis C.K. St- sometimes says stuff that's really dark, but it's funny because it's like about him in this weird way. And I want to be better at that. Not that your joke wasn't funny. <laughs> no, you way. get destroyed. It's fine. It's terrible. So, uh, <laughs> I get it. And then I have this whole thing about how, and this is like kind of I think about this with my kids. Like I remember as a kid. So so it starts off like remember winning because I remember as a kid you, you in order to be acknowledged you had to win. You you got a trophy only if you won. Now kids get a participation trophy. Blue ribbon. Yeah, for everybody. Yeah, if you just show up, you get a trophy. And so how does this? So what happens as an adult? we still get this like so i have a macintosh it's the easiest computer in the world to use right but when i break it what do i do i go to the apple store and it's the modern equivalent of the participation trophy. So I've just broke the easiest computer in the world to use. And I have to go to the genius bar. <laughs> like they call me, a, I'm the stupidest computer user in the world. But oh, here, there's a seat right here. a table for two at the genius bar. Like, enjoy yourself, sir. We're going to fix your computer that you were such an idiot. You broke the easiest computer in the world. It's made for an idiot to use.
1: So, so that's like the modern equivalent of the participation trophy. I love it. So, I was listening to a podcast that you did. So, you had AJ Jacobs on your show and he was talking about, (laughs) I resonated with this because I do the same thing that he said, which is kind of embarrassing to say, but so he was talking about how he pees in the sink sometimes and he just does it like in the bathroom sink, but I do it like when I can't, I I just can't hold it anymore and I just have to go and somebody's in the bathroom, somebody's in the other bathroom, so I just let it rip in the sink. What's the weirdest thing that you do that 99% of the people don't know about? I probably, this is going to sound odd. I probably
0: break dance for about an hour a day, just by yourself, or would? Yes, that's my exercise. Okay. Is it really? Yeah, and I've been doing that since I was like twelve. That's so, amazing. Are you? And I'm forty nine now, so you can imagine <laughs> I put in my ten thousand hours break dancing. So you- that's the only thing I put in ten thousand hours at. <laughs> and so you'd consider yourself world class? Well, I don't know because I would say world class is a lot right now is a lot more physical. Like you go, you do a lot more things like on the floor. But I've run into kids who are like into it and, you know, right in the park here and I'll watch them for a while and then I'll show them a little bit what I can do and they're they're equals. They can they all exchange moves and talk and, and stuff. So it's like a subculture I could
1: fit in, even
0: though I'm like a forty nine year old white <laughs> Jewish guy <laughs>
1: Hey, but if you can if you can hit the streets at three AM in New York and mingle and mix in with that crowd, you're You're probably pretty comfortable in those situations. Well, what's
0: what's great is Union Square, which is just a few blocks from here. There's at if you go there at like midnight, there's two subcultures that I love very much that are. that are hanging out there, particularly when it's warm weather, there's the chess subculture. So I'll know everyone there and I'll sit down and I'll play and I've known these guys for 20 years. And then there's like this breakdancing subculture that's like uh, right next to them. So I'll go back and forth between one subculture and the next and they all know who I am. and, uh, And it's fun. I feel like, oh, okay, that's why I live in New York City. That's amazing. If you had to, and they, I would like to say there's a homeless entrepreneur <laughs> subculture like right next to it, but the entrepreneurs are all asleep then.
1: Or awake dealing drugs. Yeah, yeah. Or, or cells. John's for the prostitutes. Yeah. <laughs> so, exactly. Yeah. If you had to, if you, this might be tough, but if you had to single out one person throughout your life that you'd ha- that you had to say has had the most profound impact on it, who would you, who would you say? Can, whether it's business, personal, just that's had the biggest impact.
0: My daughters probably I didn't want to have kids, but yeah. now I have an eighteen year old and a fifteen year old and they're incredible. so they've certainly had kid when you don't have a kid yet, right? Just, so when you have a, a kid, dog. oh the impact is so much yeah. and it's negative. it's the worst thing in the world, but then it's also really good. <laughs> <Sure>. so <laughs> it's 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 impact in both ways. Yeah. So, the, so the range. Yeah. Like so maybe that's why it's the most impact. Like some people have a real positive impact, but that's like that's like unidirectional. So you're saying your kids are the have had the biggest impact in a negative way, but also positive. Yeah, they had like the widest yeah. impact. Yeah. The range of their impact has been excruciating.
1: <laughs> so Got it. And I'd say this to their face, like yeah, they yeah. know, but they know I love them. So on just on that note, um in terms of how you've been able to raise them, and they've seen a lot of your journey, right, through business, through your ups, through your downs. What have, what have you been able to teach them about failure? I think this is a hard, you can't,
0: you can't really teach kids, right? You can be an example for kids. And I think the example for kids that, I think, the, I think there's lots of things, you know, there's, a, there's like, let's say a hundred things you might be an example for. So I think one example I've set for my kids is that I don't really get angry. And, um, when bad things happen, I tend to ask, why has this happened? And have you thought about this? And, um, I, I think to myself, what am I really afraid of here? If a child disobeys me, what am I really afraid is happening rather than yelling at them? Don't disobey me. Um, uh, they see me interact with other people that maybe I should be upset or angry about. And I say, okay, well, no, this person's Got a problem, so I'm not gonna be angry at them. And, or this person screaming across the street might be crazy, so I'm not gonna be crazy back. Like, uh, you know, in terms of failure, I try to be a good example, but there's other examples in their life too, which is their peer group. And their peer group is obsessed with getting A's in school. And so, no other part of life. Expects you to get A's in in anything. Like if you are a baseball player, classic example is if you're a baseball player, if if 30% of your hits make you safely to base, then you're gonna be in the hall of fame. That's 30%. In business, I would say if 40 to 50% of your decisions are correct, you're probably a hall of fame. You're gonna be a millionaire. You're a hall of fame business person. And that's a failure, right? 40% is an F. That's like the worst. You will get thrown out of school. And uh I tried to explain this to my kid. I was giving her tennis lessons and she was getting very frustrated that not every one of her serves was getting to the other side. And so she was very upset at herself and she was very critical of herself. And I kind of explained this math and she sort of got it, but she didn't really. So she started getting really good at getting an A at serving, meaning every serve would land in the box. Um, but she would hit just these really light, like really puffy serves so they just get in the box, and so I started just slamming them all back and so she, and she would get frustrated because she couldn't return them and i said if every if you're hitting every serve in the box correctly, then you're not hitting them hard enough, you're not challenging your opponent enough, right, and so you kind of have and so i don't know if these things she learns from or what I think then she I think she didn't learn from them. But then she plays a match with other kids and she sees what She's I'm saying comes true. Right? Yeah. So she starts to adjust. So kids learn from lots of different inputs, not
1: just their parents. If, we, if I was to ask them, what's the weirdest thing about your dad that, no, that most people don't know, what would they say? I think they would say… The breakdancing thing or something else? No, because they
0: don't… Well, no, Josie, my oldest, has videotaped me breakdancing. And she put it on her Instagram, and uh, everybody, or everybody said, "Oh, your dad's cool." But, uh, <laughs> that gives
1: you street cred, yeah.
0: But I think they would just—I think they would definitely say I was not like any of their friends'
1: parents. Mm. I don't know what specifically they would say. I don't know. You, you only have 15 possessions, so that could be or less than 15, right? Um, say that again. 15 possessions or less. Like you, you've you've cut out a lot of stuff in your life. But, yeah, I mean, they could pick a lot of different things and say that are kind of yeah. <laughs> different than the than standard mold. Yeah. Yeah. I think they would
0: like to be like that, but they're not quite, I think they get a little nervous. Maybe I'm a little too much for them. I don't have enough structure in my life for them.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who's been, I guess, who have you enjoyed interviewing the most? Like You obviously have a very well-known podcast and you've interviewed amazing people. What's one that really sticks with you that taught you a lesson? Like obviously you write you write a lot of posts. What this person taught me. Yeah, and you jot them down like the takeaways. But what's one that's sticking with you right now that you're implementing in your life? It's a good question, only because there really is no answer. And that and
0: and I feel bad saying that because it almost sounds like a cop out. Like I can say, oh, they're all great because I don't want to insult any one of them. But when I really think about it, A, I've only interviewed people who I've really respected from the beginning. So maybe there might be actually two, or, let's say out of the 220, there might be two or three that have decided, you know what, I really don't like this person anymore. Like I kind of dislike them. Did you still post the, publish the podcast? For that? um One person I didn't. Okay. Two people I didn't. Got it. And then there were a couple others that I did, but whatever. But almost everybody out of the 220, I really liked a lot. Like they were my heroes and or they were my friends. And so I would say from the, a lot of the ones that were my heroes, I would do so much preparation. And then, you know, you read a book. It's not just the book. It's like then I have like a hundred questions. I get to have the author right in front of me and I can ask him any question I want. So I'll ask all these questions. So I learn a huge amount. But then also probably most fun for me is when I just have like my friends on the podcast and we're just like having a It's like a, you and you and AJ, right? Yeah, like, me and it's, AJ. It's
1: so natural. It sounds like you guys are just shooting the shit.
0: Right. And it's and and AJ's written, you know, four or five New York Times bestsellers. He's working on this fascinating project right now where he's trying to connect up the entire world in one genealogical tree. So we could talk about that and we could address things and how he does things and how he's creative. So there's kind of t- topical educational things we could talk about, but then we can just really start getting into it and just having fun. And we we have a lot of fun. We have I have an unaired podcast with AJ because I'm thinking of doing a mini series where we each challenge each other and then we come back and s- talk about what happened and then challenge each other again. And so I, the first episode of that, I haven't aired yet. That sounds, it sounds like you should air it though.
1: That sounds really interesting.
0: Yeah, just whenever, I've had like about 10 friends on recently and you see this with like Joe Rogan's podcast, okay? Joe Rogan does such a great podcast because most of the time he has on his friends and they just- and like, maybe the, the friend will be like uh, some guy from Ultimate Fighting, you know, he was an MMA n- announcer. So some guy from the Ultimate Fighting Championships, but then they'll just talk for two hours about like UFO conspiracies. <laughs> and I just, I just love how he like beers around and, uh, and he's just relaxed the whole time. Like he's not even interviewing, they're just like hanging out, but on, but Joe's so smart. And Even when he's not knowledgeable on a topic, he's able to kind of like dig in and and ask smart questions. And um, I love that kind of style. I kind of want to veer a little bit more
1: towards that style. Like less less digging into business experience, past, et cetera, and more just seeing where the conversation goes and going crazy directions. Yeah, because I have to kind of, maybe I have to have a little bit more faith that I'm going to ask good questions that are
0: relevant. And, you know, if somebody wants to read this guy's book, they could read the book. I
1: don't have to necessarily do an outline of the book in the podcast.
0: Right? Yeah. yeah. And you know, in fact, I've started doing that recently where like, let's say someone's been on Tim Ferriss's podcast. I'll say, you know, you did a great podcast, you know, Tony Robbins, you did a great podcast with Tim Ferriss. Everybody should listen. 100% of the listeners should listen to that one if they want to get the basics of your book and stuff. Now let's start talking about the things I'm really interested in. So, so and I'm happy recommending my friend's podcasts as well. So if they do a good job with Tony Robbins or, or whoever, I don't have to do the same thing, you know, then it's like, oh, I have already heard this guy. I want people to know when they, when someone comes on my podcast, they're going to get a different experience. So, and I'm even going to take that like a step further, I think in the next few months, like maybe do some... Stuff on the street with the guests or whatever. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So
1: we'll see. I don't know. And you do it. You do a ton of research on um, on the guests that you have on the show, and I, I try to do the same. But what I find is that that sometimes just trying to overload with that all of the research and information almost paralyzes me a little bit. Like even come even coming here today, I was a little nervous and and le- just having to lean into the fear a little bit of. Yeah, you got to lean into the fear. Like
0: I'll tell you, before every single podcast. About five minutes before, I am like praying that they cancel. <laughs> like here I am, I'm at the studio, right. I'm waiting for them. So I've really I've read all their books. Like it would be incredibly rude for them to cancel. Like on the surface, but I'm praying for it to happen because I'm just so nervous. I'm just gonna mess it up. And um, but I'm so excited for Monday. So I'm really I'm a, a, a chess player. I played in tournaments a lot as a kid. I was. New Jersey's junior chess champion. I'm a chess master. And so for 35 years, I've been following the career of Gary Kasparov, who was the world chess champion. He was the number one ranking player in the world from 1984 to 2005 That's when he a retired. Long run. Yeah. So he's, and then he was the first, I mean, he's, he's, he was first for so many different things. And finally, I've been asking to, for two years for him to come on my podcast. So Monday, I'm going to have him on my podcast. And I'm really nervous because I don't, Uh, what he's like a superior human being to me like in every way (laughs) so what am i gonna talk to him about and i'm just like this you know I'm a strong chess player for everybody else in like everybody else in New York City, I'm a strong chess player. But this is like I am like a gnat compared to him. So and I've for many years judged my life on how good I was at that. So I'm nervous and excited and and I hope he'll play me in a game of chess. I'm gonna ring a
1: chessboard and be awesome. Well we'll videotape it if he's willing. So how do you balance going, obviously doing a lot of research, but also like letting the conversation kind of go where it goes? If I get curious
0: about something. So I don't know, when I was interviewing Coolio, the rapper, I could ask all about like, you can't let anything go. If you're curious about something, you have to stop and say, like he started saying, well, then, you know, I had some cocaine problems. But then after I got off of that, wait a second. <laughs> you said, <laughs> yeah. how did you get into having coke problems? How do you right. get out of having coke problems? Do you, have you ever relapsed? Like you have to, did you have problems with your, did your, did your parents have abuse problems? your kids have abuse problems? Like what happened to your marriage while you were having this? And so you have to get into all, all, everything that for me, it's the same thing I would do in my interviews with prostitutes 20 years earlier. If I just get curious about something, I've got to ask. I'm never going to ask again. I'm never going to talk. I will never talk to Coolio again for the rest of my life. (laughs) So if I don't ask this question right then, uh, I'm never going
1: to, I'm never going to ask it. (laughs) Got it. So for somebody back home listening, or at the gym, or in their car, that maybe has a corporate—I know you write about this a lot—that has a nine-to-five job per se, they know they want to do something else. They know they want to, they want to get out on their own, but they don't know the first step to take. What what's kind of that directive or action item that you tell them to take for step one?
0: Well, again, a lot of it has to do with the. There's like I could say, oh, take a a class on like. Coding or or put your ideas up on Kickstarter and see who funds. Then none of that works. You have to really get back to the basics, which is be around better people and uh, write ten ideas a day to make to turn. Your idea muscle, which maybe or maybe not has atrophied, but turn it into an idea super machine, like in a supernova machine, and and be physically healthy, like get sleep and and read and and so on. You have so to kind of get to the basics, and it's being patient, right? Because a lot of people want that perfect business idea and they want to go, but I mean, I, they want that perfect perfect business idea. But I had I started my business on the side. I stayed at my full time job for eighteen months while I had a full a business. A, a functioning business with employees on the side and nothing happens overnight. And you know, I'm I'm running a business now and I'm also thinking about other things I can do. You always, you always want to have an evil plan. You always do your thing, and then you have your thing on the side. And that's how you can choose yourself. That's how if somebody says, if somebody treats you poorly, you can say, fine, I'm moving away from this person. I've got my evil plan. I'm going more towards that. And, and you can have multiple evil plans, so you diversify your, your, your plans. Now, you don't want to have 50, but you want to have three or four or five things going on on the side at different levels. And maybe you, some things are on the back burner, but then they, they come up again.
1: And uh, so it's it's almost contrary to a lot of stuff I hear tr- in terms of entrepreneurship and having like laser focus on one thing. Who has ever laser focused? T- t- just tell me a business because I don't know any. Sure. No, I I, I don't know. I'm, this is just the typical entrepreneurship advice that you hear. Right. That's kind of cliche. I know. And everybody says that and, and people criticize me and they say, oh, you're
0: wrong. You have to focus. But <laughs> well, I'm just aware. Tell me a where's business the, focus. Where's the example? So you could say Google <laughs> yeah. had 99% of their revenues comes from AdWords, but does, is Google focused? They do... They have huge. They spend billions of dollars on Gmail. They made it. They, they've cornered seventy percent of the operating systems in the phone market. They they have uh you know all their go- formerly called Google X stuff, which is I mean they even have they're trying to cure cancer in one of the projects. They are they're trying to have deliver Wi-Fi for everyone. So that's Google. Facebook owns WhatsApp, Instagram, Oculus. So they're in everything from Facebook to virtual reality to you know people making cheap phone calls internationally trying to think amazon of course you know they're constantly now you can say not only did they sell books clothes computers furniture and everything but then they even went into enterprise storage so my business stores all stuff in the cloud on amazon so they, they are an enterprise software company uh microsoft went from consumer to enterprise like Sometimes people start off with one product just because you have to launch with something,
1: but then as quickly as possible- Look at different areas. You, yeah, you yeah. have to, yeah. to, to stay in business. We haven't gone into your business too much per se right now, and I'm going to respect your time, because we, we that could be another full episode, right? But what are you most excited about now within your current business? What are your different revenue streams? And what's, what are kind of your 2017 goals?
0: Well, I'm excited in helping people figure out how to transition from corporatism, this idea that's lasted for, like, let's say let's say in the 1800s was all about the Industrial Revolution. We realized that we could um, start to use technology to make products more efficiently. So we built factories and we built an assembly line and we kind of figured out this whole method of um, moving classism into the corporate environment. So you have everybody from executives to factory workers. Now, then we had corporatism, where the idea that you could have this big corporation and people have an education so they could fit in different pieces in the corporation and they can move around in the corporation, but the corporation would then take care of you for the rest of your life and then you retire. Now we've obviously been moved that that doesn't exist anymore, but we're transitioning. So we're in this new economy where, you know, we're automating everything and AI is taking over a lot. Like, you know, Amazon's about to open a store where there's no cashiers. There's no employees. You walk in your phone real recognizes what books you pick up. It checks you into your Amazon account. It cashes you out and you walk out. So there's no cashiers, but that's just a one example. There's a, a screen driverless car. There's examples in every industry. So, I'm really excited about developing courses and newsletters that really help people figure out how to take this next step in their lives and educate them on the skills they need to survive in, in this new economy. And it's not changing tomorrow, but it's going to change over the next one, five, 10 years. And people need to be reeducated into what's happening so they can choose themselves, they can reinvent themselves, they can survive in this very quickly transitioning economy and, uh, I'm excited about that. And, and, you know, and it's a business because I put a lot of work into it. I, I hired people to help develop these things and people
1: are willing to pay for it. I know there's a need for it because people are willing to pay for it. And you guys are doing well. I think, I think I saw in another interview, what was it? 18 million in revenue this past year?
0: No, but uh, we started in like February, 2015. So a little more than two years. And I'll just say within those two years, we've had 30 million in revenues and about 4 million in profits. So, so the business itself is going well. And profits are going up all the time. What are the actual products? Products are like, you know, kind of these like a newsletter, which describes different trends and different. It's like a know. monthly type yeah. subscription model. Yeah. And then there might be products that kind of reeducate people on like how they should think about their finances and, and things like that. And then there's products, you know, and these might be cheaper, but I'll have like a book club. Like this is what you should be reading right now. Uh, and, or there'll be videos of me talking about like, here's, you know, examples of, you know, somebody who, bought a bunch of drones and made $50,000 in seven days starting a, a, a business using these drones he bought, built or bought. Uh, you know, another person made half a million dollars last month because he bought stuff cheap on, you know, the eBay of China and sold it on Amazon here. And, um, you know, and I just have tons of examples like that, you know, or I'll talk about the stock market and how it's changing and how you can take advantage of it. All pretty much info products. Yeah, I mean, what would be examples I also sell my books that yep, way, right?
1: right. Uh, and the podcast has ads. Are you, are you selling more physical books or Kindle? Both. But yeah. what, do you know which one is kind of you sell more of? Kindle. Kindle is more. Yeah,
0: but I I sell my physical books to my subscribers. You know, I usually bundle it with some kind of deal, so they can get a deal on the books. And then if they buy some other newsletter product. Which again, I think there's a lot of scammy businesses out there in that industry. And I and I hate that. I hate being the industry itself is a is a, a a tricky industry because there's just so much scam. But I try to really I always say for every single piece of information we put out there, is there a return on investment for the reader? And that's that's the, the mantra. There that's has to be a return test kind yeah. of yeah. And so that has to be
1: important. If there isn't, then I'll shut it down. Fair enough. Fair enough. All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to respect your time. I know you guys want to go get dinner. So thank you so much for, for joining me. Well, today. thank
0: you. I really appreciate uh, you coming over and taking the time and, and really being accommodating towards my schedule. I really appreciate it because we were obviously busy just moving and everything today and, and, and it worked out fine. So I appreciate it. It's perfect. Thanks so much. And I will catch you next time. Have a
1: great one. See you. You can find James at jamesaltature.com, and you can also connect to James on Twitter. He's at jaltature on Twitter. That's at jaltature. All the links and resources James and I talked about, including more information on his latest book, can be found at the page created especially for this episode. You'll find it all at failon.com 002. And finally, as I'm launching this project with the simple goal of getting people to take action by embracing failure, if you could do one thing for me to support my mission, I would greatly appreciate it. If you'd be so kind to rate and review the podcast, I'd be ever so grateful. This will actually help the podcast be visible to more people that it could potentially help. So if you feel it deserves a five-star rating and you leave a review, I'll be sure and mention you by name in an upcoming episode as a simple, small way to say thank you. To rate and review the podcast, just visit failon.com slash iTunes or failon.com slash Stitcher. That's all for this episode of the Fail On Podcast. For more resources, show notes, and action items to help you find success in your failures, sign up for our mailing list at failon.com. For more actionable inspiration, we'll catch you next time right here on the Fail On Podcast.